0: Welcome to Word on the Street, a weekly podcast from Barkers UK, where our experts help ordinary investors make sense of the latest news and events impacting the world's financial markets. This week, we look at the fallout in Westminster following the release of Sue Gray's report and the impact of Black Thursday, with the UK facing another Bank of England rate rise and dramatically higher energy costs. With Phil Atreid, Head of Wealth Specialists, Olivia Gleeson, UK government relations expert, Miles Sherry, investment consultant, and Will Hobbs, Chief Investment Officer.
1: Hello and welcome to Word on the Street. We've got lots to talk about today. It's somewhat of a black Thursday, but we do want to obviously keep it nice and tight. And I'm certainly looking to you there, Will. (laughs) Westminster continues, of course, to be centre stage. So we're incredibly pleased to have Olivia back with us once again. But also the Bank of England have been in play today, literally just raising the base rate again. So we thought we'd get a quick reaction from Will on behalf of the investment team. Theme. But Olivia, let's start off with Westminster. Pretty amazing scenes in the last week again. What's your view of where Sue Gray's uh, I suppose, hotly anticipated report leaves us?
0: Sure. Well, I feel you know quite privileged you want to hear from me today, given there's, you know, so much else going on economic wise. But yeah, very happy to give a, a quick update. You know, as you know, on, on Monday, Sue Gray finally published an update on her investigation into the number 10 parties. Now I use the word update deliberately here because, as you know, you know, we couldn't publish that full report due to the ongoing Met Police investigation. Sue Grady made pretty clear that her document was an interim overview, which she expects to be followed by the publication of the full document once the police investigation has concluded. And despite a U-turn from number 10, you know, they will be committing to publishing that report in full. So, What did the summary document conclude? You know, I don't think it was a smoking gun, so to speak. It was relatively limited in its scope, but I think it was nonetheless damaging. You know, it cited clear failures of leadership and concluded that the behaviour around the gatherings, I think she used the words, uh, pretty difficult to justify now where we are i think you know the general consensus in westminster is that the prime minister survived the publication of the um update you know of course we didn't see those 54 letters but he's come out weakened uh, certainly but sort of still you know still standing to fight another day so to speak
2: and just chipping in there olivia on on your point around the the prime minister is the expectation still that he'll likely survive to the by-elections in may as i think you previously suggested
0: before yeah, I know you love it when uh, you get me to try to do bets on things. Now yeah. <laughs> I, I, I don't think it's quite as straightforward as a clear run from now until the May elections. You know, it's a pretty, pretty treacherous path for him. I think where I just said we didn't see a flood of no confidence letters, what we do know is that they are continuing to trickle through. Now I think that because of that, there remains a very real possibility that we will see them, you know, trickle over the threshold of fifty four. Now, I think that can be random. It could be quite sporadic. You know, there's Lots of talk of a sort of concerted or orchestrated attempt to sort of uh, throw over the Prime Minister and reach that 54 threshold. But I think it could happen quite randomly when we aren't expecting potentially a sort of MP's grievances slowly, slowly build up to the May elections. Of course, you know, we've got the danger points of the full publication of the Grey Report. We've then got the Met investigation. And, you know, if, if that finds that he sort of lied to Parliament or anything like that, I think that will will be really key and i think we can also look at sort of public sentiment despite the government's best efforts since uh, the gray report you know public polling is still looking pretty pretty dangerous i think 55% say the focus on parties needs to continue 61% think johnson should resign i think uh, entertainingly i saw that rises to 84% of mumsnet users um so there you have it on, on that front so I think, you know, plenty of danger points to look out for even before the May election. Um, but just one, one final point, because it's sort of very live today, is the response we've seen from the government on the rise in energy prices. Gem sort of made their announcements a little bit earlier than we were expecting on that price hike. And the Chancellor set out the government's responses, which is sort of a discount on electricity bills and a council tax rebate for certain groups. Now, I think this is going to be critical. So we've seen the government's response. But how will Tory MPs react to that? Well, they're going to look at the doorstep, what are their constituents saying to them? And I think I'll go back to, you know, I think I've said it before on this podcast and and Will's referenced it as well. You know, we all know elections, local, national are, are won and lost on economics and namely whether people feel worse off or better off under the current government. And I think as we look to May, Tory MPs will be looking to their constituents saying, you know, how are you feeling? about this current government and people will be thinking about energy bills, you know, cost of living and and inflation. So it'll be really key whether, you know, MPs continue to hold their support for Boris Johnson against that backdrop or whether we see those letters trickle over the 54 threshold.
2: Yeah, got it. And Will, going back to what Phil said earlier, we have seen markets choppy today again, but we haven't really seen that much of a reaction over, you know, the past few weeks or so. In, uh, in relation to news around what may or may not happen with the, with the Prime Minister. Now, I think most of our clients in truth sort of get this by now, but some have still asked that if the Prime Minister did hypothetically sort of exit stage rights, whether it would actually affect their investments at all. I think I know the answer to that one.
3: Probably not, Miles. I mean, it's a bit tangential, but, you know, maybe creeping into kind of random territory. But there's quite a lot of work at the moment trying to, you know, academic work going in to explain or trying to explain, you know, how different countries fared Differently through the COVID crisis so far, it's a bit early for these postmortems, but there are, obvious, there, are, you know, there are obvious things like an economy's degree of exposure to tourism, for example. My wife will regularly point to an apparent relationship between female leadership and better outcomes. Anyway, in this you know paper that I was just reading this morning, actually, in, in, in a recent paper in the opening stages of the pandemic, you find that a good deal of the variation between uh, economies, particularly in kind of mortality right rate rates, is explained by factors like you know particular country's demographic profile you know the average age so on uh, how closely bunched together that population is geographically uh, and of course you know how many hospital beds per 1000 people pretty logical stuff really if you think about you know the nature of the disease however as you move beyond the kind of second quarter of 2020 you start to see a much larger role for the degree of polled trust in the state in scientists uh, in explaining the variety in country uh, the variation in country performance even interpersonal trust seems to become you know a highly significant variable by the second half of 2020 now this particular study looked at a load of countries uh, including the UK However, the point here, I think, is that one could conceivably argue, and we saw Chancellor Sunak sort of admitting as much on the, uh, you know, on the BBC earlier, that this latest kind of hullabaloo damages, you know, could damage trust in the state. Uh, you know, if it did in sufficient proportion uh, for the uh, sufficient proportion of the UK UK population, then it could make managing any further variants things in the pandemic's tail more difficult. However. I'll get to the answer finally. But as we know, well, translating a short, more negative view on the UK economy into any kind of effects on a globally diversified mix of investments is likely a step too far. The UK economy is simply not a major player when it comes to the world's capital
2: markets. Yeah, I'm hoping our listeners very much get that by now. But look, let's let's go back to, to interest rates, because as Phil said earlier, they have gone up again in the UK. So a nice timely episode, this one. And not surprisingly, clients are therefore asking what this all ultimately means. But before we actually look at that in detail, it's probably worth just taking a bit of a step back, considering the actual context for this.
3: Yes. I mean, the context is pretty precarious, as you know, Miles. Um, and I've just been watching, the, you know, the press conference for both actually the ECB and the Bank of England. And it's an, it's an amazing, well, maybe... <laughs> Maybe in my small little world, it's an amazing moment. Uh, but it is it, it's important. You know, yes, you know, the micron hit is clearly fading, which is you know very welcome but as olivia pointed out 11am this morning we had the energy regulator announce i think the biggest increase in energy bills on record starting from the 1st of april we've got the government looking to start to try and replenish the coffers uh, from the largesse of the uh, of the crisis that's approaching fast although again as olivia pointed out uh, you're seeing a sort of selective easing to try and sort of combat uh, some of these energy price rises and the hit they that's coming for the uk households And uh, the Bank of England caught between a a rock and a hard place. Now, on the one hand, they know that much of the inflation we are seeing at the moment is related to temporary factors, factors that will not bow to higher interest rates anyway, Uh, you know, supply chain stuff, among other things. However, if they didn't act, uh, you can see that, the uh, you know, they risk vital credibility given the levels of incoming inflation, you know, most we've seen for decades. You know Turkey's a good example we said this last week Turkey's a good example of what can happen in extreme example of when you know credibility of the central bank is undermined now besides which if you look at the UK inflation is well above target in the UK and elsewhere the employment backdrop uh, looks a lot less worrisome than many feared even quite recently feared even if there remain significant distortions and it's certainly time for monetary policy to move out of the kind of emergency room so to speak the big question though really is not you know whether they were going to raise rates this year uh, that was really known it was it's it's how much and it, whether they're going to raise rates today people sort of were pretty much expecting that it's really how much they will raise rates this year and the market is pretty punchy here and that was not cooled by today i mean this is the first back to back rate rise we've seen since 2004 and the amazing thing from this morning's kind of news was that not only were they, you know, there was, a, you know, agreement to raise interest rates from the Monetary Policy Committee, but four members, four of the nine, were up for a fifty basis point rise, and that is that took the markets, uh, markets by surprise. But like I say, you know, that that you know, this is the first back to back rate rise since two thousand and four, which is big news anyway. And if you think about it, that year, incredibly. That year, topically, I'd say that uh, that Mark Zuckerberg creates Facebook for Harvard University only, so, uh, showing how long ago it is. But equally topically, topically, it was the year of the European Union's eastward expansion. So, Czech Republic, Estonia, Hungary, all those guys, they all joined uh, uh, joined the European Union. But like I say, the big news today was that four members thought that uh, you know they were thinking about a fifty basis point rate hike.
2: Yeah, and, and just on that, because you because you referenced it, might this continue to potentially dent, say, so-called growth parts of the market? in the short term, because you referenced Mark Zuckerberg there, he's probably feeling somewhat bruised given the significant share price reaction we saw in Meta, otherwise known as Facebook, um, over the past day or so. What's your kind of thoughts there, acknowledging the fact that we obviously don't give specific uh, investment or stock advice on this podcast
3: well yeah i mean it's amazing i mean i think they were down in you know facebook's shares were down 20 percent in overnight trade weren't they which wipes say a big chunk of his personal wealth potentially but it, it, there's some some cushion there uh happily uh we don't need to worry about him uh just yet but but the um i think the point there is really about expectations of it against reality and this is a company that has you know very lofty expectations the results themselves you know if you look at them you know revenue growth is still you know, eye-wateringly high. It's just that the market had wanted higher. And it's, there's a little bit of bees to honeypot here as well. You know, the capitalist system kind of relies on uh, if someone's making excess profits, then lots of other companies try and come along and work out how they can, uh, you know, get in on the act. And that tends to limit the upside. You know, profits don't go up infinitely as a result profit margins uh, can't go up infinitely. And that tends to be, a, you know, a good thing. But like you say, this is one of the very fashionable stocks of the last couple of, you know, last decade in particular. Uh, and we do like to keep a foot in the dusty account you're seeing from this you know the bond market bloodbath today uh, and the effect that's having on certain parts of the stock market that you want to be diversified across styles as you say
2: again hopefully something our listeners are very very familiar with but look let's go back to my original sort of question list if you like because another one that i've had from clients uh springing up on the topic of interest rates actually is what this all means for the housing market and could actually lead to trouble and maybe spill over to the wider economy. Maybe actually a more simple way of phrasing this is really uh, whether if interest rates rise, house prices simply fall.
3: <laughs> yeah, I'm going to give you a complicated answer, obviously. I'll, I'll try and give you a simple one. But yes, over the longer term, there appears to be a very strong relationship between real uh, inflation adjusted interest rates and house prices. So there was a good paper on this from the Bank of England a couple, a couple of years back, I think, suggesting that uh, based on historic evidence, a sustained 1% increase in real interest rates could be linked to a 20% fall in house prices over time. That's not a sudden correction over time. Now, in the short run, you know, there's there's an awful lot more going on, ranging from, you know, mortgage availability to shifts in uncertainty, all that kind of, you know, the the swings and uh, uh, ebbs and flows of the economic cycle. And at the moment, there's obviously a very interesting trend associated with, you know, the race for space, in inverted commas. You know, last year, you saw the fastest house price growth since 2004, again, this year. Some of this is explained by, you know, temporary relief of stamp duty and, you know, the buildup of savings for some households during the pandemic. You know, that forced build up in savings in many ways. However, looking at data on stuff like the falling gap between identical houses in London and outside London over that period, or the increase in price buyers were willing to pay for a house compared to a flat with similar similar characteristics, you can certainly argue that the race for space which is unlikely to be immediately reversed. I think it explains a lot of that, um, you know, that housing market pep that we've seen in the last year. It's surprising to some, but it, it doesn't look like that's, you know, we're not expecting a house price crash, but the outlook for highest prices should be a bit more muted if we start to see real interest rates rise. I would say that's pretty, that's pretty logical.
1: Well, of course, the you know the impact of higher rates uh, for investment assets within our diversified portfolios. I suppose the way investors might look at it is it's actually reflecting on something you said last week. Well, as interest rates move higher, the returns on hopefully savings accounts and some of the safer assets that we see in portfolios they start to provide slightly stiffer competition to the future cash flows and coupons that we see on offer elsewhere in the investment world. So thinking about things like equities and and shares. Is that right?
3: Bill, you know, it's absolutely spot on. And I think it's, you know, the only point I would add is that it's worth pointing out that the real interest rate around the world are still in historically remarkably low uh, territory in, mo- in most places. But as they rise, if they rise as much as some investors expect, it is going to be a different paradigm for investors. I think, you know, as we've we warned many times, you know, it'll be better in some ways, worse than others. But, you know, it's still very much worth the ride for those looking to maximise their long-term savings. Potential, uh, of course. Nonetheless, you know, a diversified portfolio. Uh, but yeah, we, I, you know, I, I agree with everything you said there.
2: Good stuff. And another really good question I had uh, just the other day, actually, is that when considering what the future may hold, we often don't we speak factually around basically just what the bond market is is pricing in. So the question really is, how accurate has it actually historically been at uh, at predicting these base sorry base rate uh, rises?
3: I'm going to dodge this. I think I might try and get JP or Luke in to answer that one properly, <laughs> uh, as it's actually a fiendishly <laughs> difficult question. Uh, and I tend to like to dodge those difficult questions, hand them on, on to either Olivia or, uh, you know, or, or the guys that are very specialist guys. But 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 this is a, uh, there is a sort of, you know, a very detailed and much cited paper from the National Bureau of Economic uh, Research from a few years back, that's the US think tank. Uh, and it, it looks at the predictive power of yield curves, you know, the plot of bond yields, at different maturities into the future now their results are predictably Inconclusive. They find that the yield curve does have some useful soothsaying capability uh, uh, on a sort of one-year time horizon, but not much beyond. That this capability varies significantly across countries. So, in the U.S., Germany, and Sweden, they found that the yield curve can predict recessions relatively well, not perfectly, but importantly, the soothsaying capabilities appear to be fading over time of the yield curve uh, across uh, across countries. So, there is a suggestion that this might be to do with lower short-term interest rates an important part of the signal um, but i'm afraid the future is still uh, profoundly unknowable i'm afraid and, and and we'll get like i say, we'll get a luke or a, or a jp on to talk much more authoritatively about it but that's my kind of quick novice take
2: <laughs> <laughs> yeah okay and i guess it actually nicely leads on to the next question because we often say a lot should be in the price i'm sure listeners have heard that many times on this podcast as well but as the past month has shown, it may not actually take much narrative change and inflation to see a bit of a wobble. So, do we think the bond market is broadly right now in terms of what is uh, what is expected in the UK and, and indeed elsewhere?
3: Yeah, I mean, we're we're really looking at sort of uh, certain bits, corners of the fixed income complex now, and. and I'm going to try and sort of avoid it getting too gritty. But we do think there is some justification uh, to bond markets, speaking broadly, or certain parts of the bond market, reflecting a bit more upside risk uh, on inflation and the path of expected interest rates, or at least some sort of more two-way volatility. We pointed out many times before that the, world, the road ahead could conceivably look very different uh, from the one in our rearview mirror. It could be one where the supply of workers' commodities is just a little bit more scarce, and that has implications for uh, the outlook for inflation, real interest rates, you know, among many other things. In the case of the UK, though, I think there has to be, and this is one of the big debates of the sort of press conference at the Bank of England today, there has to be significant debate as to whether the curve is right in seeing base rates rise to nearly 1.5% by September now. Uh, And as I said, it was changing quite a lot during the press conference and I didn't quite get to see the end of it, but it's moved around a lot today. To give you an idea, that was uh, the market before the announcement was seeing that in 2023. So it shoved forward that already. So. As you know, we are a little bit nervous on sterling at the moment. Anyway, we're expressing that view, expressing our, uh, uh, that in our tactical portfolio across all of our investment proposition. That is, in part, the kind of investment expression of that aforementioned, or aforementioned kind of skepticism of the out, near term outlook for the UK economy. There's just a lot the UK has to has to has to digest in the coming you know months and quarters, even more so relative to you know some of its um, you know Europe and the US in some ways. So So that's why we've got that position a little bit.
1: Great. Well, and one last question, I think just from me before we call time, Uh, I suppose with rising rates, what does that mean for what we've often talked about, you know, a perception of a, a very large global debt pile? You know, we talked back in 2020, about rates being lower for longer, minimal servicing cost. I think that gave a lot of people comfort. But as rates start to rise, clearly, I expect we'll see more questions on uh, the amount of debt that's out there.
3: Yes. I mean, the major point always to remember here is that, you know, us evil bankers have not managed to syndicate debt intergalactically. So Earth cannot be a net debtor. You know, the assets match the liabilities. But it's a fair challenge. But interest rates, I think, you know, and this is... Quite widely shared view have quite a long way to go in the UK and the US before they become a, you know, a a real danger. Uh, here, I think. Um, so Larry Summers and Jason Furman, who is kind of, you know, in cricket terms, the kind of the Virat Kohli and Sachin Tendulkar of the world of, uh, uh, world of economics, <laughs> something like that. Anyway, they wrote quite an important paper on this, uh, which I think is worth a read for anyone looking to do further. But basically, as long as your interest rate remains below your growth rate, uh, you can really sustain quite a lot of debt, governments can, particularly when you have a monopoly on violence and tax collection and um, and have been borrowing relatively successfully in international markets for hundreds of years. Uh, and that is very much where, where the UK stands. So it's not something I'd worry about just yet, but this is these are things that we've got to sort of, you know, continue to consider and you're right to raise the challenge.
1: Economics and debt, uh, economics and cricket, I should say. (laughs) there. No history, though, this week. Uh, (laughs) So thank you (laughs) very much, Bill. We will look to call a halt there to proceedings. Thank you, as always, to the speakers and to our listeners today for joining us for this Word on the Street. As always, we look forward to being back with you next week.
0: All investments can fall as well as rise in value and their past performance is not a reliable indicator of future performance. This podcast is not a personal investment recommendation.